Hello everyone, this is Sean Harwell and you are listening to the Never Heard of It podcast, the podcast where we talk about the movies that slip through our cracks. I'm going to use a bunch of different voice inflections today. Man, that was uh, was a real workout right there. Mm, Just getting started, yep. Anyway, the voice you just heard is of course co-host Craig Moorhead. We're still happy to have you back, Craig. The we is the royal we. And uh, how are you today, sir? Sean, I couldn't be doing better. I'm going to go so far as to say this is the best day of my entire life. Get out of here. It's true. I'm not even going to ask why, because let's just keep it a mystery. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, would you like to tell the people where they can find more about us online if they haven't done so already? Absolutely, Sean. Here's where you can find us. You can find us on the NeverHeardPodcast.com website, where we have every episode we've ever done. And we've got write-ups on most of those episodes and Man, I mean, we've been doing this for 10, 20 years now, and it's just like the huge, it's like an encyclopedia of movies you've never heard of. You know, Mm -hmm. you can just dive in and just come up for air every couple of months. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way I do, Sean, but I feel like we have started a movement with this podcast where Mm -hmm. people are really watching movies now. Do you know what I mean? I've noticed that. Yeah, we've had multiple movies make a billion dollars at the box office now, and I can't think of any other reason aside from this show exactly you don't think like endgame there's no endgame without this podcast you know what i mean uh i'm gonna have to connect the dots on that one off the air but okay i'm just gonna say yeah we yeah we we established the podcast in 2015 2019 biggest movie of all time (laughs) you know coincidence i don't think so wait a second that happened while you were on sabbatical I mean, I was doing a little street team stuff, if that's what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Oh, hey, man. That's what I'm all about, this podcast. That's right. I thought you were just at home playing video games in your underwear. <laughs> no. I was in my underwear, but not at home playing video games. But what, what was your question again? Oh, yeah. How can people listen to this podcast? Well, they can find us also on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. You will find the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. Anywhere you can leave a review or uh, anywhere you can subscribe, please do, because it actually helps people find us. It's like you're a light in the darkness. And that's what we need more of in this world, don't we, Sean? We do. And it's always the darkest right before the dawn. Mm. Go subscribe on YouTube. I'm on Letterboxd. I think you're on Letterboxd. Look us up mm-hmm. there. But first, Craig, let's do this little exercise where I ask you what else you've watched. <laughs> Sean, this is no short list. Really? I'm going to cut it down a little bit. Well, the thing is, I've been away for about half a year, so I've seen a lot of movies in that time. Yeah, that's right. This is the first time since you've been back. Okay. First one on my list was Endgame, strangely enough. I'm a sucker for Marvel movies. This was the capper of, uh, you know, 10 years of Marvel movies. So yeah, I liked it. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Nothing. Nothing. You're not going to do a damn thing. Nope. I watched the new Suspiria. Which I really liked. Yeah, I got to get that. I got to get it. Yeah, it is. It is its own thing. I was like ready to see what, like, was it aping the old movie or what? And it didn't, and was still. Oh man, that was some. Uh, that was some good stuff. Nice. Watched the 2002 Spider-Man again with my son. We sat down and watched that. 
I'm going to go ahead and say that doesn't really hold up. No kidding. That okay. Well. Yeah, interesting. Performances are good. Effects are ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous, good or bad. Bad. And I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of technology in the last 17 years <laughs> that has come along and improved a lot of stuff. I mean, some things are all right, but I remember watching it back in the day like, wow, this looks great. I always had a problem with the Green Goblin mask because the mouth doesn't move. Mm -hmm. It's a strange disconnect for me. Anyway, continue. What else? Hell or High Water. Oh, nice. Had you seen that before? I had not seen it before. Hmm. Um, I definitely liked it. Mm -hmm. It was not one that really knocked me out, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's one of those. It's, uh, it's good. I'm kind of in the same boat. I actually maybe preferred Wind River from the same writer-director. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I like the world it's set in in general and all that kind of stuff. I was just, for some reason, I can't help drawing a comparison between that and, you know, No, no Country for Old Men. Yeah. I mean, definitely two movies moving in different directions for different reasons, but I didn't feel quite as much at the end of Hell or High Water. And that's, I guess that's really the, the main thing. I didn't really take a lot away with me. Gotcha. Finally watched Three Days of the Condor all the way through. Okay. Robert Redford, yeah. Robert Redford. And I really like it. Uh, and you can hear there's a butt coming. <laughs> and there shouldn't be. I, I really like it. And it's so interesting to watch a movie like that from, you know, what? 40 years ago or so but and just how it, how it moves and but <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know so much of that movie very interesting to watch in the me too era a little bit mm. to watch uh, you know a guy basically storms into a woman's house and is like i i live here now and she's like okay i fall in love with you and you're like what happens all the time <laughs> it works yeah i mean it happened to me yeah i watched point break with the wife the original one. Oh, nice fun yeah i mean that movie is is what it's always been and and it's it's never going to uh, fade for me K-Biggs. Yep. You know it. Uh, got Captain Marvel under my belt. Captain Marvel. I, I got it, and I started cutting a different version of it. Really? Because, yeah, because, like, I watched the whole thing. I didn't love it. It's a Marvel movie. I really like Brie Larson a lot. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, Sam Jackson is fantastic. You're watching it, but you're like, I could do better. But I can do but, <laughs> but no, the thing is, there's an event that happens close to the end that I felt like, man, that should have been at the beginning. Like, that... We should have known that the whole way through the movie. Uh, that would have been so much more interesting to me. So I was like, well, I'm going to see if that actually works. So I, I, I cut some stuff. I'm going to send it to you. You haven't seen it? I haven't. That's perfect. I'm, I'm going to get a cut together. I'm going to send yes. you my cut and just see if it even works or not. Awesome. Uh, anywho, watch Network. Network is great. Oh, so good, yeah. Always will be. Watch Charlotte's Web, the one with Dakota Fanning. Never seen that one. It's what a great movie, especially to watch with kids, and it's kind of about death and life, and but in a nice way. I don't know. That's a movie you should probably watch. Okay. Uh, watch Decline of Western Civilization. Wait, which which one? The first one? The very first one. Oh I, yeah, I watched that night too. Well, I didn't finish it. You just reminded me. I didn't never finish yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. I almost didn't finish it. That's so strange. You should say that. Yeah. Like I, I got really into the beginning of it, and then somewhere. Three quarters of the way through, I was like, I don't feel like going back and finishing it. But then I did. It's, it's great as a snapshot yeah. of a place and time. Like, that's best reason for being alive. Okay, I got two more, Sean. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Are you still awake? Yeah, I mean, I actually, well, you made me think, though, because, like, I bet I spent more time the day after I watched a chunk of that movie reading the Wikipedia page for Black Flag. <laughs> Because yeah. it's a long page and there's been like a thousand people in that band. Because I didn't recognize oh, the yeah. singer in the incarnation of the band that's in that documentary. And so yeah. like I was like, who the hell is He's this not guy? even the first one. Oh my God, I know. Yeah, so I got into that. Yeah, no, me too. Me too. Uh, like looking up stuff about fear and yeah, the scenes with fear in that. I think they kind of close out the movie. It's like, it's, it, 
pretty cool. And of course, uh, what's his face? Uh, Lee Ving. Yeah, he's who we uh, the watched in the movie that we did. Uh, what was it? Get Crazy? Was he in Get Crazy? Get Crazy. Yeah, okay. Get Crazy. Two more movies actually uh, went to the movie theater. Damn. I know, right? And watched Toy Story 4, which is fine movie. Fine. It's fine. It kind of feels like, but the third one was the end. It's so much the end, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, super funny stuff in Toy Story 4. And I realized every time I've sat down to watch a Toy Story, I've always, always, since the first one, I felt like, eh, this is going to be kind of like a little kid's movie. And then I'm like laughing the whole way through. Yeah, it delivers. I'm a fan. And, and yeah, so, yeah. and I felt the same way about this. Okay, good to know. And finally, we watched uh, How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World. Yeah, I heard some debate about that movie from some millennials. So what's your take on it? My take on it is the three movies. <laughs> nobody can train a dragon yet? They should be trained by now, right? It seems like the first one that would have been <laughs> done. I, I, yeah, I didn't have any deeper take on it. It, sure. it was fine. There was a really nice moment at the end. The animation is beautiful. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Fun. If there are any millennials listening, I'm on your side. You should be. They're going to run the earth. Into the ground. Well, you can't <laughs> really do that. Oh, <laughs> uh, shit. Well, that's a great list. Is that, was there anything else or no? Believe it or not, there's nothing else. That was the whole list. Yeah. What about you, man? Mine was short. I told you. I watched uh, Nashville. I've been watching that in bits and pieces. Yeah. It's a long-ass movie. I know. I feel like you watched it and mentioned it not too long ago. Yeah. And maybe you weren't as hot on that movie as some of the other Altman flicks? I, I don't think I was as hot on it, but I mean, I don't know. It's an Altman movie. like. This is the first time I've ever sat down and watched the whole thing from start to finish, even though I did break it up, if you're following me what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like it's it's wrong to even call it a movie. Like, it's <laughs> it's just not. Like, it's something else, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating to soak it all in. And then, yeah, like, in the final minutes, I think yeah, you get, like, a very real movie moment. And uh, it kind of ties it all together in a weird way. Right. But, good God, I don't even know where do you start with that as far as, like, conceiving it or how you execute it or what you are being told as an actor or thinking or, or putting a performance together. Like, it's just that different. Yeah. It is kind of cool to watch it, and you can absolutely see Paul Thomas Anderson. So many moments I'm just like, okay, mm-hmm. I feel like this is where he got this shot from Boogie Nights and, and this and that and Magnolia. Like, there's just a couple moments where I just I felt his his influence heavily on on that young man. Totally. And then, Craig, I watched a chunk of a little movie called Return of the Jedi. What is that? It is a movie that you very graciously sent me a copy of in 4K without any of the special edition effects or alterations. And I haven't finished it. I got through all the the Jabba scene, which is, that's a pretty long sequence to open the movie with. Uh, I I hadn't really paid attention to that. And it's been a long time since I've seen Jedi. Yeah. I do think my memory of it is the the special edition of it. I think that 4K transfer that they did looks great. And it looks like, you know, 1980s film. Yes. But my, I think my memory of it was much crisper looking effects. Interesting. I found myself wondering, Craig, for the first time in my adult life. Oh, no. Maybe George Lucas was onto something. In terms of, of like keeping his movies watchable? In terms of updating some of those effects, because there's some ones in this original version that are just out and out cheesy at this point in time, yeah. I think. Yeah. Like that Rancor that gets killed or whatever, and then there's yeah. a shot where the guys are crying in front of it, and it's clearly not... There's some stuff that looks really dated, 
And I don't know, maybe old George, like, you know, in 1997 or whatever it was when that like special edition came out, maybe he wasn't thinking so much about then as 2027 and how those movies are going to fare when like kids are watching them. So I don't know. I don't know. Fair enough. I would still argue, though, he went a little mad with his power. I agree. I don't think you should change the content. Yeah. Like cleaning up those matte lines around the TIE fighters and stuff like that. Like, all that stuff was like, great, yeah, get rid of mm-hmm. all that stuff. And even if you, yeah, used CGI to, like, take out the rear projection screen stuff and kind of put the Rancor monster in there, great, do that. But all the all the other stuff, man, I don't know. I mean, look, there's something to be said for just letting a movie be a time capsule of what it is sure. and when it was made, period. But, I, I mean, those movies have transcended that, I think, yeah. <laughs> for a long time now anyway. Yeah. So I don't know. It was an interesting reaction. I'm gonna. I'll report back again once I finish the whole thing. I also yeah. was just really struck this time by how juvenile so much of the movie is, and how they were sticking humor in there at like every little corner. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see. But anyway, let's talk about it in a lonely place. Oh man, let's get lonely. First, you have to have enough imagination to visualize the crime. You're driving up the canyon. You put your white arm around her neck get to a lonely place in the road and you begin to squeeze you're an ex-gi you know judo you know how to kill a person go ahead go ahead brother squeeze harder craig this of course is a movie from 1950 we teed it up last time so everybody knows that it was directed by nicholas ray it was written by andrew sold of the earth from a book by Dorothy, her name is right there, Hughes. Of course, you've got the one, the only Humphrey Bogart in the lead role of Dixon Steele. Gloria Graham plays his love interest, Laurel Gray. Frank Lovejoy plays the police officer. Oh, he's a detective now. Brub Nikolai. Brub. Got a few other actors in there, including Jeff Donnell, who played Brub's wife. Jeff is a woman. If mm-hmm. you'll know that if you listen to T-Up. Very cute woman, I thought. Mm-hmm. Some really fantastic stuff in that T-Up, I think. There were some nice surprises there. Go listen to it if you didn't already. How about I give a synopsis? Do it up, Sean. IMDb tells us, This movie is about a potentially violent screenwriter who is a murder suspect until his lovely neighbor clears him, but she begins to have doubts. 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 You watched it. You'd wanted to watch this for a long time time we talked about how different this looked like compared to the other nicholas ray movie we've done which was johnny guitar we talked about how much you loved gloria graham and now you've soaked it all in all one hour 34 minutes of it what did you think craig i think it was quite the movie i liked it a lot it has pretty much every quality that i want out of a black and white noir-ish movie while at the same time sort of being a movie that's not actually Noir, I guess that guess it definitely fits into the noir thing. Uh, it just doesn't go like whole hog into like Maltese Falcon land or anything. You're not in shadow during most of the movie. Right. But it's certainly, it's a dark subject matter. Oh yeah. Big time. Big time. And I find it's interesting the way it, uh, you know, it really revolves around the central relationship. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about, about with a lot of other things I've been watching. Well, like Three Days of the Condor, for instance. Yeah. And some older stuff. Where it's like that central relationship, there's never that moment that really makes me 
buy it necessarily. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that buying that relationship were, were the filmmakers counting on like Gloria Graham being pretty um, and, and Humphrey Bogart being Humphrey Bogart, you know, which he is, which he certainly is. <laughs> yeah. But this is a really interesting relationship that they have. And I totally buy them being like intrigued by each other and therefore like spending a lot of time. But it really goes into love land and beyond, I guess I, I should yeah. point out. And, and so I, I don't know. So that to me, that was a weaker part of a movie that I otherwise enjoyed. What about you? Well, let me ask you this right off front, because you talked about the Bogart of it all. We had that quote in the tee up from someone who knew him saying that this character and performance represented the closest thing he had done on screen to maybe himself. And uh, he is, how would you characterize the, the man in this movie by the end of this movie? He's very angry. He's not really in control of himself. Easily jealous, paranoid, uh, drunk, violent. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not not the guy you want to fall in love with for sure. Yeah, and I just, I don't know. I was, kind of, I was still kind of taken aback by that, just how yeah. kind of dark it gets there. I mean, at the end, sure. it's just like, this man's got some serious issues emotionally i don't know the psychologically but emotionally definitely i mean there's some deep deep scarring in his soul somewhere (laughs) and uh he takes it out on other people and he kind of knows it yeah it's sort of fascinating to watch that i mean this is like you know one of those movies that's just about the dissolution of Mm -hmm. love as opposed to so many movies being about saving love or love in the end Right. I'm sure that's unusual for the time period, perhaps. And and I thought that side of it held up pretty remarkably well, actually. This is a movie that's like, okay, like this is what an abusive relation looks like when it's not just a man hitting a woman. Right. But but the threat seems to be there. The threat is is just hanging over them like a dark ass cloud. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like that is still like really relevant and pertinent, you know. Unfortunately, I'm sure there's a lot of women that would go, yep, I've seen this I've seen this bad guy before. You know, he's not sure. the kind of guy that's going to end up in jail because he's going to give you a black eye, but he's going to scare the shit out of you because the potential for that is there Yeah. whenever he just doesn't get his way or something goes wrong. So I thought that was really effective. Does the setup of that relationship work? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely something that happens quickly, and we'll get into it in a second as far as to even how they they meet right i really actually liked a lot of just the hollywood stuff in it you know the movie business side of things that are kind of this undercurrent of the whole plot in particular the agent mel played by art smith you know this little guy who's just popping up here and there and just poor poor mel you know he's uh (laughs) maybe should have retired 20 years ago uh, and saved himself a lot of grief, but he didn't. And he's saddled with this somewhat uh, troublesome client here. So I yeah. liked all of that kind of stuff. I was a little surprised by how small it is. It's very contained from a location aspect, you know? Yes. There's a lot that just is kind of happening in their apartment, in the room. There's a bar, a restaurant. Uh, there's a police station, and there's Brub's house. And I mean, that that's kind of it, you know? They're out yeah. on the street and on the beach once, but I don't know. I was thinking, because I know we mentioned The Third Man kind of came out right around this year, at least in America, and... Like, that movie hops all over the damn place. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel wrong that this was contained. I just noticed it. Right. Let's talk about the setup a little bit, because 
Uh, that was another interesting one, too, that maybe was a slight curve from what I expected. I don't think you can go wrong by opening a movie with Humphrey Bogart in a convertible driving at night. Oh, yeah. Just for your title credit sequence. I was like, I could just watch him drive around, you know, and it's dark. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and the music is happening. I love that there's like a car that pulls up beside him and there's an actress in the car and she says something about him being the writer, Dixon Steele, and blah, 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 blah. Her husband makes some comment to him and... I mean, it's within 30 seconds, Humphrey Bogart is getting out of his convertible ready to fight somebody in the street. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, that's clue number one as to who the hell this guy is totally. and why he's in a lonely place, if you will. We go to a bar, the restaurant. He's clearly a regular at the bar. He's got a friend who is an aging actor who's constantly drunk, who's hanging out at the bar. He meets his agent and a director there, I think. And they're talking about a novel that they want him to read and possibly adapt. It's all set up. It's ready to go. He can go on salary the next day. He hasn't read the book, but the age, I guess the agent or somebody gave it to the hat check girl at this restaurant. Yes. Martha Stewart. Okay. Yes. Played by Martha Stewart. This girl's name was Mildred Atkinson. She was early 20s, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I mean, she feels like she's your character who just got off the bus from Indiana, basically. And, you know, she loves Hollywood and all this stuff. And it's kind of taken in by the glitz and glamour of it all. I don't remember how that she ended up with the novel. Did they just give it to her or what was <laughs> Do you know? I guess so. Yeah. But she's the one who seemed familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. So she's familiar with it. He's checking his hat and asking her about it. And she's like, oh, it's so good. I haven't quite finished it, but blah, 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 blah. You know, I know it's going to feel, let me just read it here while you, you have your dinner. I'll give it to you on your way out if you don't mind. He comes up with the idea. I was like, well, even better. Why don't you just come back to my place and tell me about it? Because I'm probably not going to read it. And I can tell all I need to know about whether I want to take this job from how you describe it. Right. What was your level of gauging his interest in Mildred at that point? I mean, you know, for a movie in the 1950s, I would expect there to be a shot of him, like, kind of giving Mildred the, the look up and down, you know, yeah. and changing his demeanor. And I, I mean, I saw none of that. So I, I didn't think he had any interest in that whatsoever. Me either. I like how that played out. They do yeah. go back to his place. He takes off his jacket, I think, and shoes, and she immediately gets a little nervous. Then he's just like, sorry, I just... I like to work in my bathrobe and slippers. That's just, that's just what I do. He seems like he means it. I think she says something about questioning whether this is going to be anything other than a work situation. He's like, no, I write at night. I write at home. And she starts telling him about the novel. And she gets very excited. At one point, she basically reenacts the scene by screaming out the words, help, help, help. And it's somewhat late at night. At least it's it's like it's before midnight. And he's got like a, the shutters open or a window open. And he's like, hey, quiet down. I'm going to, you know, I got neighbors here. And sure enough, he looks out and Gloria Graham is on her balcony kind of staring into his apartment. Right. <laughs> to me, that was like, okay, this is like very obvious foreshadowing at some point she's going to have to like testify or say that like, yeah, I heard her screaming for help. And that was just a big misunderstanding. She continues to tell him about the novel. He wraps it up. He's like, yeah, I think I know all I need to know. Thank you. If you don't mind, can I just pay for you to take a cab home? It's late. I'm tired. If you're not offended, there's a cab standing right around the corner on Santa Monica Boulevard. She says, okay, good night, goes her way. And then the next morning, Brub knocks on his door. We find out that there's interest in him coming to talk to Brub's superior at the police station because Mildred was thrown out of a moving car sometime between like one and two in the morning and died. 
He was the last person seen with her at the restaurant. At that point, I feel pretty sure that he didn't do anything wrong. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, because, yeah, yeah, we don't see the time period between, say, midnight and 5 a.m. I don't know. Did he stay up all night? Or it kind of seems like he didn't sleep much. Right. Maybe (laughs) I just took it like completely on face value that he didn't do this thing, you know? Yeah. I was trying to gauge later whether is that good or would it be more interesting if we had reason to believe that we don't know all the facts, like that we didn't just see the whole scene unfold, that maybe she came back or something, or right. if they had slept together, then it's like it changes everything completely, right? But that's not going to happen in 1950, I guess. Right. It was just kind of interesting to feel like you knew the answer to that particular mystery because I kind of thought that's what the movie was going to be about. Right. But I think at that point, my first thought was that Laurel had killed Mildred. Interesting. It just seemed like the obvious thing because Humphrey Bogart like was going to sleep. It would just be weird to like then explain how... But then he got up and, you know, like went and got a car and, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, slight clue. But she had seen them. Was she, did she have the hots for him? Was she some crazy lady? Did she kill Mildred because she thought Mildred was, you know, his girlfriend or something? Like, I had no idea at that point in the movie. So that that's why I was like, maybe, you know, it's her. It's such a small glimpse of her from the other balcony in that scene. I didn't even know that. I, I mean, I kind of assumed that was Gloria Graham. But mm-hmm. I didn't know for 100% sure that that was her. Well, let's talk about how she enters the scene here then. So once he's taken to the police station through conversation, he's being kind of snarky about it with the detective or the police chief, Captain Lochner, played by Carl Benton Reed. You know, I mean, he's certainly maintaining his his innocence, but he's he's also not entirely moved at all by the fact that this girl died. Which, if you're dead inside, I guess, is kind of <laughs> kind of how you respond. Right. We also find out during this that the character Brub was in the war together with Bogey, and uh, Bogey was his commanding officer, in fact, and they've been friendly, although they haven't really kept in touch. He certainly doesn't believe that Bogart killed this girl, but the, the captain is not so sure. The idea of an alibi comes up where the, something about friends and neighbors gets mentioned, and the light bulb goes off, and the next thing you know, Gloria Graham, Laurel Gray, is brought in to be interrogated or interviewed in this room with Bogart in the room. I thought that was kind of interesting just in the sense that I don't think you can do that to this day and age. Like they wouldn't have your chief suspect in the same room with a witness and just letting the suspect talk. It does seem sloppy. But let's describe Gloria Graham, like just from a character standpoint and personality standpoint when we meet her here, Craig. She seems very sure of herself. It seems like she's got something to hide. Doesn't it? And again, that's my feeling based on what I was already thinking was going on, right? Yeah. I believe that she maybe is the one who took out this girl. She has a, I, I don't know, uh, what do I want to say? I think she says something about the reason she was looking at his apartment. They tried to ask if there was any sort of relationship there. She knows who he is, but she doesn't know him. Right. But she says something about it. It's like a, he has an interesting face. I, I think that came out in that conversation. So she's, it's not flirtatious, but... It's also, she's not just coming in, just stating the facts and leaving. Right. There's definitely some in, intent to her lines of dialogue, which absolutely feels right for this type of movie. I also think you know instantly that it's not going to be long before they're pursuing one another. 
Or did you think she was lying about knowing him and maybe they knew each other already? I guess that's the thing. Yeah, at the at that point, I was definitely trying to run through a lot of different scenarios. Yeah. But it did seem to me, in that scene anyway, it was very much that sparks were already flying. So it's like, yeah, so you got brought in to tell the police that you kind of felt like this neighbor of yours didn't kill a girl. And you're like, and I might go out with him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's an interesting position to be in. <laughs> Stranger relationships have happened, right? I guess so. Remember in Ferris Bueller when Jennifer Grey and uh, Charlie Sheen meet up in the police office? I mean, that's that's the quintessential... uh, Hookup place. Yeah, exactly. Not really. I gotta hope not. It probably is, though. (laughs) Anyway, so she gives her alibi, and there's no real reason to think that Bogart was saying anything other than the truth. They have to let him go. Man, one of my favorite shots was when he was just walking away or I guess walking back to his apartment and he just throws a cigarette on the ground. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. I mean, there was just something to him. She's like, damn, yeah, yeah, get him, bogey. <laughs> the earth was a cleaner place back then. They could throw a cigarette butt on the ground. It wasn't such a problem. Yeah, somebody would be right along to sweep it up. Okay, Bogart clearly now has the hots for Gloria Graham. Ends up inviting her to have dinner with him at Brub's. Yeah. Now, this comes after the police chief is still saying... I think this Dixon Still guy is hiding something. He's got a pretty long rap sheet. He beat up a producer and fractured his jaw. He, there's a former girlfriend that claimed some abuse and then later retracted that claim, but still. He basically has Brub invite Dixon Still over, hoping that maybe he'll get a better feel from him in that situation. And he goes over to Brub and Jeff Donnell. And man, I thought that was an interesting scene because, you know, it seems like they're just having this friendly dinner. And then he starts talking about the murder and how it could have happened. And he kind of uses Brub and his wife to reenact what he thinks happened. And he gets a little carried away when he tells Brub to put his arm around his wife's neck and squeeze and squeeze harder. And I feel like they even did something with the lighting there where it got really dark around his face, but kind of intensely bright right on it. And he looks like a fucking madman when he's doing that. I think clearly that's intended to be a plot point for us to think, okay, maybe this guy did do it. Did you think that, Detective Moorhead? Well, I mean, it it certainly felt like that's what they were setting up at this point. And then I I think at that point I was thinking, yeah, was he in on it with Laurel somehow? Mm Mm-hmm. Because that scene really does seem over the edge. Yeah. That definitely uh, pointed the arrow in his direction. I think so. And I'm like, I'm still even trying to think as like, I guess it's just part of his psyche a little bit because we do see signs of that later with Laurel herself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's again, there's some darkness inside this guy. Well, but but is that just his creative impulse? You know, is he just thinking of it because like he, you know, he writes these stories and, and, you know, he's he can't help thinking about it. Well, and in fact, um, I think it was Brub's wife who had some line about, oh, you creative types can afford to be temperamental, you know? Right. As if it's like, yeah, I guess we just shrug it off because he's a writer and this is, (laughs) he's supposed to be kind of a weirdo. That's how you get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I've never done that though. Anyway, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong. They kind of just skip the romance stage altogether with yeah. Laurel and Dixon. I and mean, we, we kind of skip ahead a little bit 
and they're pretty solidly a couple. Mm-hmm. Do you have any indication of how much time has passed? I'm trying to remember. It didn't feel like that much. I don't, and and I th- this was one of my problems with with the relationship. Like it does kind of feel like all of a sudden they feel like they have an unbreakable bond between each other. You know, and I don't know. I don't know. And I'm trying to remember. I mean, she's definitely younger than him. Like, that is clear. I, I can't remember if there was some mention of another suitor or a guy that she... Well, no, there was a thing about her having a relationship, but that relationship went bad. Yeah. It felt like there was a bit of play there where she... It felt like she was, like, priding herself on not getting involved with Hollywood types or something. I don't know. Right. I'm just making that up. And then... And, I, you know, I think we're just supposed to imagine that she eventually was just kind of won over by him and you know maybe she had interest in him all along because he is different and mysterious mm-hmm. and, and and you know maybe she's just attracted to the wrong type of person but i don't know i mean in some ways i feel like seeing that play out could have not been very good you know sure <laughs> it might have taken a lot to make us feel that switch and it could have just stalled the movie completely so I guess they just chose not to do any of it. Well, I mean, maybe Nicholas Ray has never heard of a little thing called a montage. Even Rocky had a montage. Right. That's another thing that you could uh, re-edit, Greg, you know. I might. I might just. I'll take scenes from It's a Wonderful Life and Casablanca and just put them together. Boom. I like it. So, next thing you know, yeah, she's more or less living with him almost. She's there constantly helping him type out the pages that he handwrites as he's doing this adaptation. She's taking calls. She's like the living assistant who's also in love with him in a way. And he's yeah. being productive. He seems happy. He's writing at a full steam. And it'll only be a matter of time before he has his script done and delivered into the hands. And they've got a, a greenlit movie here. I'm trying to remember what those little breadcrumbs were of foreshadowing the darkness. There is the masseuse who was <laughs> yeah. Martha, right? Yeah. Well, A, there was like a shot that sort of like the camera was on the ground looking up at the massage table as Gloria Graham is kind of hanging off of it, looking down at the camera. And, you know, you get her very bare shoulders. And I wondered how sort of scandalous that was for the time. Yeah. Martha seems like she's not at all taken by this relationship but also, she's kind of judging Gloria's character as someone who's done this before. Right. Fall in love with the wrong guy and then come running to her looking for a way out. I don't know. That's an interesting thing to lay on a masseuse. <laughs> yeah, that masseuse is, first of all, super knowledgeable yeah. about what's going on. I mean, she's a psychiatrist, right? I guess so, yeah. I mean, uh, they, 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 they really had to go to school a lot longer back then. Mm -hmm. I think a big, big turn in their relationship happens when they as a couple are at the beach with Brub and his wife. Mm -hmm. And poor, poor Brub's wife. Poor Jeff. She accidentally says something about the fact that the captain still considers Bogart a suspect in this murder and had interviewed Gloria by herself. And Bogart didn't know about this. To him, he immediately assumes that she doesn't quite believe 100% that he didn't do it. And man, he storms out of there. And the next thing you know, they're driving. I think they're on Mulholland Drive, maybe, or somewhere in Laurel Canyon, perhaps. He's driving like a maniac. Like, I thought he was just going to die, like, driving off the road. And instead, he has a run-in with another car, 
they park and the guy gets out and yells at him and Bogart beats him nearly to an inch of his life. He's in fact picks up a rock and is like ready to bash this guy's skull in. Yeah. Until Gloria is like yelling to him to stop. You know, as far as red flags go. <laughs> uh, almost killing a guy is uh, pretty uh, damning. It's a pretty big one. And to her credit as a character, that's kind of all she needs, I think. I don't think there's a yeah. moment after this where she turns back into, well, you know, that's just dicks, and uh, I'll give him another chance kind of thing. I mean, I felt like that relationship was done in that moment, and it was just a matter of her figuring out a way out of it. It gets way more complicated when he proposes to her, and she says yes because she's scared. Right. She's already planning to run away. He's making all these arrangements. We're going to have an engagement party, celebration at Paul's, and then we're going to go to Vegas and all these things. It's just all coming crashing down. At the same time, she's confided in the agent that she's scared of dicks. Mm-hmm. And I love the agent's response. Now, here's here's the thing where we're not at all in the Me Too era because he really just seems worried. <laughs> he seems worried about what's going to happen to dicks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when she doesn't want to get married as opposed to the fact that uh, she's just told him, yeah, he almost killed a guy. I'm really concerned about my own well-being here. He's like, no, yeah. you can't do that. He, he just needs success. You know, he needs to feel happy about something and then he'll come right back around. You know, uh, if he has success, yeah. he doesn't need anything else. Here's a line, too. He says, you knew he was dynamite. He has to explode sometimes. I mean, this is the, yeah, this is very 1950s sort of thinking. It's like, yeah, like a guy's going to lose his cool every now and again. What's wrong with that? You know, like just stiff upper lip, you know? Yeah, totally doesn't care about her or the danger she's in or anything. It's just like, oh, look, what you got to do is you just got to make sure that he is happy enough to be successful. Yeah. So her idea is, well, he finished the script, take it, give it to the director. If they like it, maybe that'll change his mood. Well, that, of course, gets revealed in the, the worst engagement party dinner <laughs> in, in the history of mankind, I have to imagine, because that scene was tense as hell, and he ends up punching this poor old agent in the face and just knowing that he shouldn't have done that. And I love the scene where he follows the agent in the bathroom and is like, did I cut your eye? He's apologetic, and like he's aware of his anger and his temper, and like he just can't help it. He's like raging bull almost, you know? Right. It's like he just can't control it. And when he comes back out and she's left the restaurant. Yeah. You get the scene back at the apartment. So when he goes back from fighting the the agent, that's when she's got like the back bedroom locked. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he comes in and and she's just acting cagey and she's not sure what to do. Finally, he realizes, you know, how weird she's being about everything. She's made plans. Like she's she's got a I guess a ticket. Like, she's ready to fly to New York or something? That's right. They get a phone call, and it's, like, from a travel agent or somebody. And it's like, yeah, right, there's a well, ticket there, available yeah. for you for New York. And he's like, you're going to run away from me. Yeah. And that's when he tries to kill her. Yes. I mean, that shit worked on me, man. I thought that was really intense. Like, I, I wasn't quite sure how that was going to play out, especially, I mean, we knew from the tee-up that the advertising was selling this as having a pretty shocking ending here. And I'm like, yeah. is he going to kill this Like... <laughs> Gloria Graham on screen is that are we about to watch this happen it doesn't happen no the phone rings again 
can't remember if he stopped himself like he did with the stone or whatever. Yeah. But I thought it was because the phone rings and it kind of breaks him out of it. Yeah. I, I, it, it has that sense of just like this, you know, bipolar kind of like the light switch flipped and then yeah. and he picks it up. It's Brub and he's like, oh, I've got the good news I wanted to give you. We got a confession from Mildred's ex that he killed her it's exactly as i thought your buddy my old war buddy you're clear uh, re- you know really sorry about the stress the captain sends his apologies and in fact he would like to apologize to gloria personally in the heat of this moment like i think bogart just kind of he doesn't have any response and he hands the phone to gloria and she says something about well yesterday that would have been very good to know but today it, it doesn't help us much at all yeah and then i think he walks out and that's that's it right that's the end, yeah. Let's let's digest that a little bit because there's finality to that, I guess. Yeah. And yet you don't have a ton of reason to believe Bogart's a changed man per se. No. I don't really know what the hell is going to happen to Gloria. I mean, no clue. Yeah. I think we're supposed to believe, okay, this relationship is done and she'll be okay, I guess. And maybe Bogart's mm-hmm. like just been put through the ringer, but he knows enough to pull away and that he almost did something unthinkable and he just needs to walk away from it. You know, I, I, I mean, that's kind of how I read it, but I don't know. What do you, is there a future for this guy or is he just going to go blow his brains out? <laughs> well, I, I think he's definitely going to blow his brains out. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there, okay. nothing about that woke him up to anything. What, what I find interesting is, you know, being a movie from the 50s, the movie plays it as, oh, well, yeah, if they had known that, then this moment would wouldn't have happened and they, this whole uh, thing about being suspicious wouldn't have happened, and, and then, then they would be uh, like a happy couple. So it's kind of a it's kind of a bummer that there wasn't a sure way for her to know that Humphrey Bogart didn't kill her, because otherwise they would have been great. But that's not true at all. If he in that moment was going to try and strangle her, then that's who he is, <laughs> and he's terrifying, and he always will be. And it's not like there's nothing is going to change. Like yeah, no matter what that phone call was she needed to get out of there like that was the the rightest thing she could be doing so my feeling is yeah she got on that plane and got the hell out right okay and probably told her horrified granddaughters about that one day and they were like but what and he's like yes we had to break up of course you did okay two thoughts yeah one is i feel like gloria almost said the exact same thing to the agent it doesn't matter if he murdered this that he didn't murder this person yeah it's not because of that that i don't want to get married and i shouldn't have said yes but then she says but i can't 100 percent say that i'm even sure he didn't do it yeah so there's that i think yeah like she's already planted those seeds that that news doesn't really change anything at this point and shouldn't. Well, and, and that and that's true. I mean, that's maybe I'm being a little too hard on the ending because you're right. I mean, she does have that moment, and that's just true. Like, if you ever thought, really thought that your spouse had murdered somebody, like, you kind of felt like, man, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they murdered somebody. That's a good enough reason good to enough. be like, I'm out of here. The second one is, is there any validity to the notion that Bogart is under stress throughout this entire period because he has been accused of a crime he did not commit. I mean, we've seen Shawshank Redemption. We know what that can do to a person, you know. (laughs) Yes, it definitely puts stress on him, but we already know before that stress ever happened 
that he can be a son of a bitch. Yeah, he had a rap sheet, right? Like he's got he's got a rap sheet. He's gonna jump out of his car to fight somebody in, in the middle of traffic. Like if it's not this thing, it's gonna be something else. It would have been interesting if we didn't know any of that sort of prior stuff, or if like it had only happened during the war. Like he yeah. was this guy in the war. You know, maybe there's some PTSD, P, 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 PTA stuff going on. No, PTSD, PF Chang's going on, and. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know, that would be a different sort of like psychological character, I think. The question crossed my mind, but I do not think that excuses his behavior at all. And the movie does not want you to think that. So I don't want to lay that out there. I just, yeah. I just thought it was an interesting thing to think about in regards to this type of character. True. As an ending, then how did that work for you as a movie ending? Were you expecting something different? Because I got to say, I kind of was. Oh, yeah. Up to the end, I was expecting to find out... That one of them was the one that killed yeah. the Mildred. Because we already know he didn't do it, right? I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, we really yeah. weren't ever to, led to believe that he really could have. Aside from like he has the temperament to do it. Yeah. And so it's kind of a matter of how is this movie going to explain to me how that is logistically possible? Right. Like that's really the thing because I don't. I don't believe it, so you're really going to have to blow my mind with whatever it is. Yeah, which is why I think it could have been amazing if he had killed Gloria at the end of this movie and then got the call that he's cleared. Yeah, but he turns out to be a murderer after all. But he did kill this one. And like, you know, just how you sort of like wrestle with that as a viewer. But I'm sure at the time, yeah, maybe that call coming in really did land and it, it played extremely well and and through people's like this really tragic ending personally i was kind of hoping for just like a slightly bigger firework i guess yeah i mean in the end it it was it's purely a relationship movie yes which is also why it felt so contained to me i think too you know yeah exactly and and like there's as as much as it feels like oh this is going to be like a crime movie it's a murder mystery, but it's not. Like, it's it's really just about their relationship and all these things happening outside of it. So, yeah. So, I, I totally get it. I totally get, like, yeah, you were really looking for that, for kind of a bigger twist at the end. Did it land either way with you or the whole uh, line about... I was born the day I met you. I was born the day I met you. I lived while I loved you. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really think that was a particularly great line. <laughs> It's yeah because I don't know there's there's so many good great lines in this movie that had that sort of like sure. stinging noir kind of bite to him and that one was I mean it could have been used in a way that was interesting because he was sort of talking about it as as a line that he's been trying to fit into a screenplay right so right. it's like okay well yeah that's that's Hollywood dialogue for you at the time but then to do the callback I guess at the end to me just felt like eh I don't need that yeah and I mean is it something that's really saying like that that was how real the love was between them. Or is it is it just sort of saying, boy, there's a lot of misplaced passion here. <laughs> well, and yeah, that's the thing is because like, yeah, you just, it's hard to gauge how deep their love is because it is a really pretty short-lived relationship, which plays into the, the part of the line about the few weeks. But at the same time, it's like, well, I get that you're infatuated with each other in that amount yeah. of time. Is she your soulmate? I don't think so, dude. <laughs> like, you know. Well, yeah, and you know, and that's kind of the thing too. Is like I kept thinking, like, this is so great for them to be infatuated with each other, and there's kind of this intense scenario that's surrounding them that they're kind mm-hmm. of in the center of, and they're they're both kind of cool characters, but they have this soft, mushy side that's attracted to each other, like all that kind of stuff. I liked, I, and I kind of wish it had never, it never needed to go all the way to, oh, we're going to get married and I can't live without you type stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, the only thing is, 
at the point at which, yeah, you're going to kill somebody with a rock. Like if you're lightly dating someone who almost kills someone with a rock. She's gone. Yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no turmoil. Nope, she's going straight like, to done. the police. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess that is tough, but, but, but for, for that amount of time at the beginning, like I really kind of liked that about these two people who just seem to be, I don't know, like like kind of a good match and there's kind of a gamesmanship about their flirtatiousness and it's kind of fun. I mean, they're both kind of dynamite in a weird way. Um, although yeah. I really did like her character by the end of this thing. Like I, it just rang true to me, I guess, in a way. Like I, yeah. she was never completely a damsel in distress. No. She felt like she did what she could to try and get out of that situation for how quickly she fell in love with him, which that I don't buy. Everything else about her, I thought, got rang really true, and I thought she played it well, man. I don't know. Had, did this change anything about your your love for Gloria Graham, seeing her in a, what I imagine is a very different role from some of the other stuff you've seen her in? Not at all. I, I completely loved her in this. Uh, and I started reconsidering my reconsideration. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just because, yeah, you know, apparently that's all kind of hearsay about the whole underage stuff you know yeah. i don't know they got married she did marry her one-time stepson but uh yeah, the underage yeah. stuff yeah don't don't know it's not great if that happened but uh but anyway but yeah i mean this is this is like everything i really like about her i love seeing her in a role like this she really gets to play a, a pretty nice range of of emotions and everything this is uh, pretty great yeah what about those soft focus close-ups well those are my favorite <laughs> that's why whenever i look at a picture of her I actually wipe Vaseline on my eyeballs. <laughs> you should not do that. That is not good for your eyes. All right, if you say so. Yeah, I do. Really smooths out the wrinkles, though. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, anything else about this movie that stood out to you or anything that you liked or didn't like or anything you want to add? I don't have anything else to add. It is what it is. It was a cool experience. I mean, I can see the Bogart of it all and the you know the magnetism towards this movie simply because of that. I mean, he is menacing as hell in this thing at times which Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean i definitely don't know his entire catalog but i i hadn't seen him anything quite like this before so it's really cool to see that one other line that i loved a lot of them just kind of happen in like that first 10 minutes mildred when she's at his house says something about how i used to think actors just made up their own lines and he says when they get to be big stars they usually do which uh it's great right it's great Especially for a screenwriter to say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. All that stuff's just been going on forever. That's for sure. Oh, the fight continues. Now, I watched this movie. I just rented it from uh, the Google Play video store. It's on iTunes, on the Criterion channel, I think, currently. If not, it is definitely on Criterion Blu-ray. I say it's absolutely worth watching. Agreed. Craig, any last words? I was born the day we ended this podcast. Hmm. Think about it. All right, y'all. We'll be back next time with another tee up and try to figure out what the hell that means. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.